Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm your host this week, Bruce Kelly, my cohort and colleague and partner in all things investment news. Jeff Benjamin is on vacation again this week. Um, and uh, we've been missing each other like ships in the night, I guess, uh, uh, recently. I'm going to be on vacation next week, so and Jeff will be back. But then, and then we'll shut it down for the for the end of 2021. But then we'll get back on a more regular schedule where Jeff and I are both on the podcast um, coming up in uh, January. And uh, but this week, I am um, very pleased to announce that we do have another investment news regular in here. One of our top editors, Sean Alaka, who's been on the podcast before, I believe, uh, in here to talk about tech and some uh, developments or non-developments in deal-making in the fintech world. So, Mr. Alaka, thank you so much for dropping by and kind of pinch-hitting for Jeff Benjamin here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You got to use those vacation days before the end of the year. So, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't blame you guys. I was telling people some, you know, some people, some sources about that recently. And they were like, what? Why are you, not, why are you never around? I was like, well, I got to take all my vacation. Man. I've, I've been working here for so long. I took, you know, I think Jeff and I were kind of stuck. We had all this vacation time and because there's nowhere to go. <laughs> during the yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad to be here. That's happy awesome. To, happy to show you. Sean, why don't you tell people, first of all, what you do for investment news? And then I think your role has kind of changed recently a little bit too, right? Sure. Yeah. It's been working a bit since I got, well, I got here two years ago as a deputy managing editor. So just right. running the kind of the day-to-day, um, editing the copy that comes in, making, you know, take care of the website, the news. Running the website, right? That's a big yeah, part of Yeah. That's sort of my main kind of responsibilities. Right. Um, and then at my, you know, my previous job over at Financial Planning. I was a tech editor there. And um, when I got here, we had we had a vacancy there. So I kind of jumped in and I kind of started taking lead on a lot of our tech stuff. Right. And and so now that's that's what I'm doing a lot more of the time now is just covering tech. So I'm happy to be back in the space. I love it. I've been doing it for, I don't know, I guess the last five or six years. So I'm happy. I'm happy to be covering it again. It's it's familiar to me. So it's, it's nice. Um, and what when people say fintech broadly, like, what do they actually mean by yeah, I mean, fintech? Well, I guess, and then what does that mean for, you know, financial advisors or, right. or broker dealers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fintech broadly is just, I guess the word is just financial technology. So it's any kind of tech startups generally um, that, are, that are labeled fintech that, you know, just technology that's helping, you know, financial professionals or even, you know, retail investors just gain access to the markets really couldn't be anything. And it's not even just investments. It's, you know, payments, um, you know, there's reg tech, which is regulation technology, right. technology for marketing. There's all different segments and wealth is one small slice of that. Um, it's probably about 10 to 15%, I would say of the general FinTech globally. Huh. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and, and that kind of tech helps advisors in all sorts of ways, back end stuff, front end stuff, um, you know, you name it, there's tech behind it. So are you more of a tech nerd or a finance nerd or just a nerd in, in general? Like, how do you, I, I'd have or to just a with, Jersey guy, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> um, a Jersey nerd. <laughs> That's a rare, um, rare combination. Yeah, there's, um, 
I, I kind of just fell into tech and I just loved it, you know, and also just fell into finance. I, I never thought I'd be writing right. um, in, in finance, and um, but it happened and um, it's been great. Yeah, I mean, the, just seeing the, the technology and what it's been doing in the last, especially the last five or 10 years in, in the advice sec- sector has been awesome. So it's, it's an exciting time to be here for sure. Well, I know that the, I think our readers are turning uh, to investment news over the past, I don't know, five, six years, seven years um, for technology, right? We've always had a tech reporter, but it, it's, it's, the beat has become more and more important, I think, at the newspaper. So um, it's great to have somebody like you with your wealth of knowledge and, and, and background on it. And with all that said, um, I wanted to have you on uh, the podcast just to talk about a column that you wrote about one of these um, one of these fintech companies, uh, one of these robo uh, banks or robo advisors, uh, Wealthfront, mm-hmm. and I found it very, I found your column really interesting because it. Um, you know, uh, uh, I guess Bloomberg reported back in November. We're in we're in the first or second week of December now, the first week of December, and back maybe mid November or so, Bloomberg reported that Wealthfront was up for sale and was asking for a lot of money. So, if you could just tell us about what is Wealthfront and and yeah. you know what did your reporting flesh out from from the original Bloomberg. Yeah, well, I, well, Wealthfront, I mean, they were one of the re- leading, I mean, the original robo-advisor, you know, so so if you don't know, the robo-advice is just a pretty much a mobile app where you can just, you know, download it and uh, get signed in, get onboarded, and you can just have basically Wealthfront just manages your portfolio. So they ask you a risk, they give you a risk questionnaire. It's maybe like 10 questions about your right. net worth, your your financial picture. And then you just pick, you know, if you want an aggressive portfolio, moderately aggressive, and that's it. You're signed up and and you get a portfolio and you can kind of just ride the wave. You know, they're really meant for retirement. It's not like a day trading thing. Right. So could you just give us a little context, though, about Wealthfront? And when you said it was the first or one of the first of these robo advisors like when was that 2010, 2011? Around there. I think it was right around the financial uh, crisis. crisis. So I right. think it might have been, I mean, I, like, don't quote me, but I think it's like 2009. I can actually just write because I think it was in that column. But yeah, somewhere around there. They've been around 13 years, maybe, which is like. Right. So 2008, dinosaur. 2009, the robo advisors come along as an alternative, right? Correct. To, you know, Main Street investing. You don't have to deal with a broker who you just might have lost 40% of your portfolio in the market crash, right? of 2008 and 2009, um, which I was at Investment News reporting then, you were probably somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so these guys can't kind of, the, the robo-advisors kind of were presenting themselves as alternatives, right? To your financial advisor who might have conflicts and the like. Sure, yeah. I mean, mostly a much cheaper, I think, right. alternative, you know, because right. they're, they're doing like 25 bips, 30 bips. Um, but obviously you don't get the, the human element to it. But yeah, they just, and it, wh- I think what they were doing was just opening it up. You know, they were kind of, that was their 
mottos, you know, that they're democratizing it and opening it up, you know, right. because a lot of people, they didn't have the assets required, you know, for an advisor, you know, to even get to even get advice from an advisor, because it just wouldn't be profitable, you know, if you only have 50 or 100,000, you know, to invest. Right. So this got a lot of a lot of people, you know, just you're kind of yeah. The major firms at the time essentially unified their approach to clients, where you needed at least, you know, for a big Wall Street warehouse, you needed at least five hundred thousand dollars to walk in the door, if not a million, you know, to be able to talk to a a financial advisor. Yeah, which it's a whole lot of money. So right, the 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 barrier to entry has been lowered significantly. Right. And really because of Wealthfront and, and their, um, the East Coast rival Betterment, um, you know, they're from New York, Wealthfront's from Silicon Valley. So right. those are the originals. And so. So it was Wealthfront and Betterment. Right. So what, what, what was the news recently about Wealthfront? So fast forward, you know, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. They've had a spirited rival in Wealthfront and Betterment. So, um, <laughs> so hopefully, uh, especially in the beginning, they were really going after each other. Yes, they were. It's, yes, they it's were. been fun to look back and see some of that reporting. But yeah, recently, Wealthfront, um, well, there were some rumors that they were going to get, they were up for sale over the summer. Right. And then it did, there was a Bloomberg report that came out. Wealthfront hasn't, um, hasn't verified anything, but they are up for sale, it looks like, and it's a valuation of $1.5 billion, which, you know, that was kind of the story that it seemed a little bit high because, I mean, the problem is that robo-advice is just everywhere these days. It's just, you know, every bank has one, every, you know, Goldman, everybody has one. Right. So it was, you know, to me, it was who would want to buy a robo for $1.5 billion? I mean, they, they got so much scale that it's almost like they're too expensive now for just to be buying the technology. Um, for for that price tag and so we I think they would been a victim of their wealth front is a victim of its own success it seems to me right yeah I I think you're right I mean they have four around 400,000 clients that's a lot of clients yeah it's a huge footprint and they have I get I want to say around like 30 billion the 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 ADV usually says a little bit less but they like to say 30 35 billion right right so I, you know, it just made me think about who would, because would you be buying the technology? But everyone already has the technology. So then, would you be buying the assets? I, I don't know if they're worth 1.5 billion. Right. So I just started asking around, and we got some interesting, interesting stuff. But uh, most, mostly, people were just not thinking it was going to get get to there. When they when they added up the numbers, they didn't get it to 1.5 billion. You know, a lot of these analysts and things in the industry. So we shall see. But um, I would imagine, and you don't know what will happen, but either they're going to be sold for a little less or they're just going to stay, remain private. Right. Well, I'm sure they're profitable, you know, if, if the, or one would imagine that they, they would be profitable or could be profitable. Yeah. Um, so it just depends upon what the margin is and it's a private company, right? So they don't report, um, that, uh, uh, they don't have to, because they're a private company and the like. So, but they do have to report some stuff on their form ADV, like their assets and regulatory mm. issues and the th- yep. things like that. Yep. It seems yep. like I said, getting back to this notion of that, that uh, Wealthfront is a victim of its own success. I mean, their technology was cutting edge uh, back, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, but now, I mean, has, you know, mm. I think in the, in this, you mentioned Vanguard in the, in your column, right? Mm. And a couple of other firms have have 
have their competitors caught up with the technology and what they're offering in terms of robo advice or or what? Absolutely. I mean, in in terms of assets, Vanguard now has I don't know 100 and something 150 billion or something crazy. They're they're far outpacing um, pretty much everybody. I think the next would be Schwab. Uh, so in terms of assets, yes, um, they've been far outpaced by some of the incumbents because they already had that scale to Vanguard. Right. You know, so it's you know it's kind of like apples and oranges, but in terms of the tech, the in my opinion, Wealthfront still has the edge. The just the base kind of technology, um, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone has that. Everyone has that. They have it with an advisor, a hybrid, without an advisor. But I think what Wealthfront stayed true to their vision of no advisor, just complete technology. And now CEO Andy Ratchcliffe, his latest vision, he's been working out for maybe three or four years, maybe more, but we've been reporting on it for about three or four years is called, um, it's escaping me right now, um, self-driving money. And it's basically you auto, you automate your paycheck. So it gets directly deposited into Wealthfront. They pay all your bills. You have all your auto bills paid, signed up. That gets paid. The rest they put into your investments, whatever investments make the most sense and your and your savings. And, you know, the rest is is just for you to spend how, you know, how you spend every month. Right. So basically he wants you to not even have to think about money once the client from from the moment the check is deposited until all your bills <laughs> paid and everything. So he wants it completely automated. So that's his vision. That's why I think there's, there's still it's kind of an exciting firm and an exciting vision. How close are they to having that kind of no-touch experience for their clients, for their 400,000 clients, do you think? I mean, they have pretty much all of the technology there, I think. I mean, you can direct deposit. I would imagine that probably was one of the big hurdles just in terms of onboarding and getting everything set up for the direct deposit. I don't think it's far away, though. Um, I'm sure that they're probably in beta right now, I'd imagine. So I, I think it's, will people actually do that? Do, do people want one company owning exactly. all of their finances? Right. Uh, that remains to be seen, but it's it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years. To have your mortgage, your retirement account, your kids' college savings yeah. accounts, whatever, right? All yeah, emergency place. stuff. Yeah, Emergency fund, et cetera, yeah. you know? Huh. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I, I just think it's fascinating to think of these, you know, these these upstart technology companies maturing and and saying what's next you know do we sell a majority stake do we sell a minority stake etc you know yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting i mean betterment is always said they want the ipo that's their end game but i think like like we mentioned before the kind of a victim of the success they're in a weird place where they're too big and you know for anyone to try and buy them you know but they, they still have such a footprint. So it's like, who is the right, the right buyer? So that's what I tried to find out in the column. And a lot of people, I wasn't going to say names today, Bruce, but a lot of people did come back and say Goldman was right. an interesting choice. That's what a lot of people, because they, they made that move to Marcus, which was to get out to kind of main street people. And they, they did have an in-house robo they launched last year, but People are thinking this would be a good compliment to that and get that footprint. 400,000 new people give a, you know, a big boost to their robo-advisor. And also it would be a good compliment to the United Capital buy. So you have the United Capital Advisors and now this would be your retail robo-arm. So. You know, Sean, we got to have you around more, man, because that is a seamless transition into our next topic. <laughs> I try. <laughs> you succeed, my friend. 
And we're going to talk, our next topic is um, something in my, more, much more in my space than Sean's space, which is M&A and brokerage firms and alternative investments and the like. And um, it recently, uh, uh, over the past several days, um, uh, Apollo Global Management, which is a huge uh, uh, credit manager and, and uh, alternative asset manager based here in New York, um, with global reach, said it was buying a, a very much a niche firm in the alternative investment space, in the in the REIT space, in the interval fund space, in the credit space, called Griffin Capital. Um, and I'm working on my column right now uh, about that, Sean. And I think you know your um, uh, your the, the reason why I keyed on your uh, uh, raising. Goldman's purchase of United Capital, which happened in May of 2019 uh, and was priced at $750 million at the time. Um, that was really a huge indication that Wall Street wanted to uh, dig its heels into uh, a piece of the, a portion of the financial advice marketplace, which it had long um, no to little interest in. And that was the independent RIA space. And in the Apollo Griffin Capital deal, um, you see something very similar. A global firm is digging its heels into the independent RIA space and the independent BD space as well. So just to back up a little bit, Griffin Capital, uh, Apollo is buying essentially the wholesalers at Griffin Capital, and they have relationships with over 200 RIAs and IBDs, right? Um, including Commonwealth Financial Network and Cambridge Investment Research and other really big IBD networks. So Wall Street is coming to your independent broker dealer really is, 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 the, is the headline. Um, and um, just like Goldman Sachs did with its purchase of United Capital, Apollo is also getting its hands on about $5 billion in, in, in um, uh, various interval funds from uh, Griffin Capital. And interval funds are like closed-end funds that have, a, that have more liquidity than typical non-traded REITs or non-traded BDCs because they let invest a certain amount of investors cash out you know, over intervals, I think every quarter, mostly every three months. So um, they're really, Apollo is really buying its way into the RIA and independent BD marketplace through this transaction. Um, Apollo's looking to go big in wealth management. Um, and they wanna add, I think they recently said something like $50 billion in assets over the next five years. So they have, you know, big uh, plans in mind, but a piece of those plans is, um, is this distribution to RAs and IBDs. And, and now if, if I can ask you, is this just kind of a reflection of the RA segment in general and just the explosion of what we've seen in assets? And I mean, when you look at some of these, um, some of these earnings reports, the profit margins are up like 20% year over year. How are well, they making this much money? Yeah, the in the past, Wall Street, you know, really, and I mean, you know, 
Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley had really looked down its nose at mm -hmm. independent RAs and independent BDs because primarily because they Wall Street and the wirehouses and the private banks, their clients are the richest people in America and the world, right? So they're the multimillionaires. They're the people with 10 million or $20 million in assets. And the RAs and the IBDs, uh, their clients are not nearly as wealthy. Um, they might have $500,000 or a million bucks or 2 million bucks. But because of a couple of things, the market boom, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, LPL has a, tr a trillion and two in assets now, right? LPL Financial, the biggest IBD out there in the bellwether. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, several years ago, they had 400 billion or 500 billion. So their assets under management or assets that their clients, that their advisors advise has tripled or doubled, right? In the past five or six years. And then you have all this money pouring into these, um, this private, these private equity funds pouring money into buying um, RAA networks like United Capital. And United Capital was one of the first, um, but there's you know dozens of them now, right? That I report on, Jeff does a great job reporting on, of course, yep. you know, and that we cover. Um, and, and the reason why you know, the Goldman's and the Apollo's and others are taking this so seriously is that a well-run RIA kicks off a very steady uh, and handsome income stream mm -hmm. and returns 25 to 35%, you know, uh, per year in terms of net profit, right? Oh. Or income. So, uh, and even higher for some well-raised, for some, excuse me, well-run RAAs, they can kick off, you know, cash of up to 40% uh, per year of their revenue um, in terms of their net income. So um, they're really profitable businesses. So it's not surprising that Wall Street is focused so much on these things. But when the big banks and the big money, man, money guys start focusing on things, they like to go big. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just not a little deal here and there, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's big deals. I mean, Griffin Capital, since 1990, they opened in 1995. The guy who, who ran them, his name was Kevin Shields. Um, it was his firm. They've raised over, according to one uh, analyst I was speaking to, over $15 billion over that period of time. And they did it really by cementing those relationships at those brokerage firms, Um and those RAAs. So that's what Apollo, you know, is interested in. And I think that's what Goldman Sachs was interested in with United Capital. So it wouldn't be surprising if your prediction about Goldman and eyeing, looking at, looking seriously at Wealthfront to kind of, you know, uh, buckle on to United Capital and all its, mm -hmm. uh, and its other uh, uh, wealth management um, uh, you know, businesses that it has. Yeah. I'll be so happy if that actually comes true. I never <laughs> do things like that. So that's going to be like, you know, the crowning achievement. If I get that one, you'll but look like a really smart guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just talk to smart people. That's, that's the trick. Well, but Bruce also, so are we going to be seeing more more and more of these deals? You think the, the, that's a great question. The problem is that the quality is 
there's not a lot of quality out there, I think, for an Apollo to buy, um, for others like Apollo to buy, uh, because Griffin Capital had the, had the history, right, and the hundreds of relationships. Um, it's been around forever. A lot of these types of alternative asset managers who've worked in this space, as I've covered them over the past 20 years, you know, it's kind of been a boom and bust space. And I'd be remiss if we mentioned, you know, the former non-traded REIT czar, Nicholas Schorsch, mm-hmm. uh, in the podcast, because Apollo actually tried to buy Nick Schorsch's firm back in 2015. And as business issues, business problems rose for ARC, American Realty Capital and Schorsch. And then he eventually got, he had to settle with the SEC for a large amount of money and the like. Um, That deal evaporated. Um, So Apollo's been looking at this space for a long time. It just, and it it took them, you know, uh, half a dozen years to focus on this firm, Griffin Capital Securities. So I don't know. I'm not going to be as bold as you (laughs) and make a prediction. Um, But I think what we can surmise right now is that everybody in the independent space, be it an independent RIA, independent BD, everybody's for sale, Mm -hmm. right? Independent FinTech, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone's for sale, man, because there's so much money out there Yeah. from these big uh, investors like Goldman and, and Apollo. Yeah. We're in so. the wrong industry, me and you. <laughs> but you know what? It will be fun covering this stuff in the next it's, It is fun covering it. Yeah. The newspaper business, you know, not so. It's so hot. It's an old, it's an old fashioned business, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's, but it takes, it's an ex, and it's an expensive business to run because yeah. you actually have to deliver real information to people. Um, and, and not just nonsense. So not just tweets, you know, you actually have to do real reporting, you know, and then tweet tweet about it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So we'll be watching Wealthfront, uh, and, uh, for the future and watching, uh, these big firms on wall street and how they're playing out, um, in the, in the financial advice, uh, uh, space. Sean, anything else to add before we wrap it up? No, no, I appreciate it. It's been a blast, Bruce. Thanks for the uh, the history lesson and, and informing me on some of this M&A stuff. I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to your coverage. I appreciate that. And uh, next time on, we'll have to talk sandwiches, too. We'll have to talk Jersey, uh, Jersey sandwiches, perhaps, too. We, right? we get the best in the country, Bruce. You know, <laughs> you know, you're a Jersey guy down, <laughs> down deep. Okay. So, sandwiches on tap for next time. Perfect. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. So, everybody, uh, thanks for listening. We want to thank our special guest, Investment News' very own Sean Alaka. Uh, we want to thank our producers, Stephen Lamb and Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, uh, uh, my Twitter handle is at BD News Guy. Jeff Benjamin's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Uh, stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>